Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 25th, 2022. Uh, our screens, our television screens and computer screens are dominated by the dark, disturbing, depressing visions of war. And some of us would like to take our minds off this. One way to do that is perhaps to return to utopia, that no place that Thomas More invented in uh, the beginning of the 16th century, uh, 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 an ideal place, supposedly, a place which escaped war, violence, unhappiness. The idea of utopia remains uh, very popular. Uh, Terry Eagleton had a piece a few years ago in The Guardian about why Moore's uh, utopia re remains astonishingly radical. Um, coming from Eagleton, I guess that's particularly radical. But of course, utopias are also dystopias. Uh, we talk a lot on this show of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, particularly in our tech-centric world. There are real places, though, uh, uh, more talked about utopia as a no place, but there are places in the world which are attempting to be utopian, if you like. One of those is a place called uh, Auroraville um, in the southeast part of India. Um, it has been written about by my guest today, Akash Kapoor, who, who has written a book about his experience of growing up and going back to live in uh, Auroraville. Uh, the book is uh, being acclaimed. It came out last year. Better to have gone. Love, death, and the quest for utopia in Auroraville. Um, the New York Times, it, it's been acclaimed, and the U New York Times headline of the book was When Utopia Met Dystopia. Um, Akash is joining us from Princeton, New Jersey, which I guess is neither dystopian nor utopian. Akash, do you think that New York Times headline summarizing uh, Auroraville, both utopia and dystopia, is fair? Uh, no, not really. You know, one of the great sort of myths is that authors have any say over their headlines. And often... and often a myth, Akash. All authors know that. Well, not all readers are authors, right? So often we get castigated by our readers, not for the piece itself, but for the headlines. Um, so no, the book, the book isn't about utopia meeting dystopia. The book is about a place that is neither utopian nor dystopian. That's actually a human place characterized by maybe a certain amount of longing for utopia, which is both wonderful, but also dangerous. Um, I think what the headline is referring to is that the book is about the intersection of a kind of social or collective longing for utopia with a very individual, private, human tragedy uh, that I write about in the book. And that might be the dystopia they're referring to. So it's not the place, really. It's about the, it's the story of some of the people in the book. What was or what is radical about Auroraville? Why, why is it experimental? Why is it different from... Princeton, New Jersey, or San Francisco, California, where I am? Um, well, you know, it might have more in common with San Francisco because it, it was sort of, it came, 
it came out of a, well, a former version of San Francisco. Let's put it that way. It yeah, came, I just, I'm just uh, up the hill from Haight-Ashbury. So uh, I'm very familiar with that former San Francisco. Yeah, well, the former San Francisco, definitely not the San Francisco of today. Um, but it came, you know, it, it was in part, it was an outgrowth of that late 60s kind of hippies movement. Um, and there were intentional communities. I try to avoid calling them utopian communities, but intentional communities that came up all over the world. Oroville was in some ways at the tail end of those, and it's lasted longer than most of them. But, you know, a lot of the, the initial people there were, did come out of that, that hippies movement. And I mean, you know, what was radical about it was, okay, a broad sort of impulse or urge to reinvent the world, to create a better world. Uh, there was an urge to definitely to reject, uh, you know, traditional sort of capitalist economies and, and, and longstanding hierarchies. And I mean, that's both radical and not radical because in many ways, uh, many of these communities, not only in the 60s, but throughout history have, have embodied those values. One of the things that was very uh, different about Orville and that's really stood the test of time is that it was ecological and environmentally conscious before its time. Um, so the people who settled there in the late 60s, uh, you know, they found themselves on this sort of barren, deserted plateau and they started regenerating the plateau and planting trees and creating this amazing uh, reforestation program, not because they were great ecologists and there wasn't much environmental consciousness anywhere in the world at that time, that kind of started in the early seventies, but out of necessity um, because they had to survive on the plateau. And so they kind of accidentally created one of uh, you know India's great reforestation programs and, and ecological successes. How big um, was the Auroraville that you grew up in and how big is it today? How many people live there? Uh, it's about 3,000 people today. And when I was growing up, it was much smaller. It was like, you know, probably around 500 and maybe had grown about 1,000 by the time I left it when I was about 16 or 17. And, it, and its economics was one of subsistence agriculture. Is that fair? Mm, in the very early days, I think that's what it was. But there was quickly more of a pivot to, you know, you might think of it more instead of like, handicrafts. And I mean, there was always an, an, an attempt to find a sort of self-sufficient economy. And so people started creating, you know, little workshops to do leather bags or shoes or jewelry or, or things like that. But I would also say that, you know, one of the greatest challenges Oroville has faced, like these communities throughout the ages, is actually building a sustainable economic system uh, that both rejects the existing traditional economies of the world, and yet you know, has to has to interact with it and has to exist in it. And so like in the book, I write about the attempts to create Oroville's first bakery. And they were absolutely determined to bake this bread and that no one would have to pay for the bread because, you know, one of the founding principles is that there should be no exchange of money in Oroville. But of course, you know, the wheat berries aren't free and somebody has to pay for that. And so they come up with all these kind of like roundabouts so that somehow money gets generated and paid. But then in the, the final product, when the bread is actually quote unquote, bought, there's no money exchanged. You don't sound particularly convinced. I think, um, I mean, I think. I mean, I, is that, is that, to put it unkindly, uh, hippie wishful thinking when it comes to economics? I mean, is that magical thinking? Is that just childish? To some extent, I mean, I've sort of vacillated on this over the years and gone back and forth between, you know, cynicism and idealism on it. And, and where I've landed is that 
a community like Oroville, it's it's really a matter of perception. And so it's like I often say it's like a glass half full, half empty kind of situation. And so if you measure it up against the goals it set itself and some of the goals it sort of stated or still states that it's, it's pursuing, it can often seem like a pretty lamentable failure. But then if you measure it as an attempt to create something different or to create an alternative to what exists out there, then it can seem pretty interesting and maybe reasonably successful, right? And so you have an economy right now, it's got its challenges for sure, but it's certainly more egalitarian and more in the direction of, of the, you know, the, the, the kind of dream that people set themselves than the economy you're living in in current day San Francisco, for example. That's not hard to cash in San Francisco. Um, you're, uh, I, I listened to a good podcast where you were talking about the freedoms and failures of, of Auroraville. In particular, what do you think the biggest failure was and the greatest accomplishment of Auroraville, which we can learn from? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the, the biggest accomplishment is one I alluded to. I think it's, it's the ecological work and the reforestation. And so I think it's that, the regenerative quality of, 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 yeah. of the agriculture. And yeah. it, does that go with a kind of a cult of the soil, a veneration of the soil? No, I don't think so. I really think it was born out of pragmatism and, and necessity. And I think that one of the things that's really interesting about it, to me at least, is that it was, it was never part of the plan, right? So like when these communities are founded, they're essentially planned societies. And this was never part of the plan. And I think this is often... You know, the, the, the problem with utopian communities is that, like, it's very hard to plan human nature and to plan history. Um, and so they often, the complexity and the unpredictability of human nature often ends up bumping up against the plan. Uh, in, and that certainly happened in Orville, like in, in the case of the economy or sort of town planning or things like that. But here was a situation where the, the sort of native inherent energy and idealism of the type of population it, it adopted in a very unplanned way got channeled into a great success. And it's very interesting to me when you think about utopias and what you know what's good and what's bad about them that it's often the stuff that you don't foresee that you don't plan that's successful um in terms of failures i think it was effectively the lack of it, it, and it remains the lack of a cohesive sort of governance system or decision making system mm -hmm. within the community and this is also something that you often see happen in these communities over the ages uh because they start off very small and so they start off in, with sort of like, you know, consensual decisions are made through consensual goodwill, where like a handful of people get together and basically sort of decide in the interest of the community, or often it's just the founder that single-handedly decides things. And then one day you wake up and the community is too big to do it that way anymore, but there's no constitution and there's no sort of formal decision-making process. Uh, and at this point, the community is often too big and too fractious to agree on a decision-making process. And, you know, it's like without a sort of, accountable and respected decision-making process, it's often very hard to, to, to make progress. Uh, so some people refer to this within the community as, you know, an aspiration towards, quote, divine anarchy. Mm, you know, I think often it just ends up in kind of like stasis and, and lack of progress. You mentioned the charismatic founder, which Oroville's founder was the mother rather than the father woman called Mira Alfasa. Um, she's no longer around. In an America, and indeed in the West, where democracy is in crisis, its management, its operation, its architecture, what could we learn from Auroraville as it struggled to figure out a form of self-government 
were, were there any experiments that actually worked? The citizen assemblies, for example, are in vogue now um, in Western European countries, but they're much larger. Uh, did 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 the politics and and as you suggest some of the failure of politics in Auroraville, did it bring out people's worst qualities? Yeah, I'm trying to think about you know lessons that are transferable. I mean, um, I think certainly one one of the one of the things that that you you saw in a place like Auroraville is that the, the lack of moderation uh, and so you know by its very nature it's the type of community that attracts radical thinkers. And that's often a wonderful thing. And in some ways, that's the kind of like raison d'etre of these communities. But the, a lack of moderation uh, can often be a problem because it, it because it's, it presents itself as a kind of radicalism. Uh, and 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 then you get these sort of radical these, these these ideologically opposed camps where each side thinks it knows best and has very radical opinions. Um, and so I think that's clearly you know a, a, something that applies not only to the U.S. but to many current day societies where we see polarization between radically radical opinions and very strongly held opinions. I have a line in the book that has resonated, I think, you know, with, with a few readers who've written to me where I say something like growing up in a utopian society is the best way to make you an incrementalist um, because you just get very skeptical of highly sort of radical plans and dramatic plans to utterly reinvent society and reinvent human nature because you see how often they kind of crash up uh, against reality and, and cause tremendous harm, you know, not just socially, but but really pain and, and death even to individuals. Moore's utopia was controversial for, for many different reasons, and maybe we can talk a little bit about more later in this conversation. Uh, but the two areas which aroused particular controversy, both when he wrote and now, is his vision of property, of the propertyless nature of utopia, and the relationship between parents and children. Um, was there property or is there property in in this community you grew up in? And what and, and, and did children, I, I know that there were some changes, but did children become common property uh, in this community? Um, so the, the first one, there is no common property and, and everything is, is collectively held by the community. And so like no one owns a house or no one owns, you know, land within the community. Um, and I think by and large, that's actually worked out. I think that there's this sort of communal, it certainly has its issues, but I think this communal property, I think it creates problems. I mean, there, you know, economists have done studies about uh, the sort of beneficial results when, when people own property and are willing to invest in property and sort of, you know, work to protect their property. And I think there, some of that has been lacking in Orville that when you create a situation where people maybe don't have a direct self-interested reason to invest in their property, you get a kind of tragedy of the commons type of situation. But I wouldn't characterize it as one of the, the kind of major, major problems in the community. Um, as far as children and parents, no, I mean, children weren't, you know, they weren't communal property. Um, it's true that, you know, hippie culture had its problems when it came to parenting. Um, and there was a certain um, laissez-faire quality, should we call it, that hasn't worked out for everybody. So I wouldn't say that it was about children being common property, but um, I would say that there has been, you know, what you might characterize, and not with everyone, but in some families as kind of irresponsible parenting. Well, certainly irresponsible parenting is not unique to um, uh, Auroraville or utopian communities. I'm talking to Akash Kapoor, the author of Better to Have Gone, one of the big hits of last year, universally acclaimed by critics. I think it's I, I'm sure, has it won any prizes yet, Akash? I'm sure it will. 
<laughs> I don't know. It's been on a few lists, and we'll we'll see. Don't be shy. No prizes. Well, I'm sure it will eventually, but it's a it's a wonderful book, beautiful book, acclaimed by critics. We're going to take a short break, and afterwards, I want to talk more about utopia, uh, ideas of utopia, what we can and can't learn. I also want to talk about children and utopia. So we'll be back in about sixty seconds. Hold tight, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Akash Kapoor, the author of Better to Have Gone, one of the big hits of last year, Love, Death and the Quest for Utopia in Auroraville. Um, the idea of Auroraville, according to its founder, at least, was seeking to be a universal town, I'm quoting her, where, where men and women of all countries are able to live in peace and progressive harmony. But of course, it had geography. It's in Tamil Nadu um, in India. Uh, here we have a map of it. I I'm curious, um, I I'm curious, Akash, what, what was the relationship of, and what is the relationship of this community to Southern India in general? You've also written a book called India Becoming. So you're an authority in many ways on contemporary India. Was there good or is there good relations? Do these two worlds exist or coexist or are they just profoundly separate from one another? So I think like... Um... Like many things related to Orville, the, the relationship has been complicated um, over time. Um, and, you know, there there are some critics who would look at Orville and indeed who have commented on the book. And, and what they would see is this community uh, that now consists of people from 60 countries, half the people, half about half the population is not Indian. And so they see this community and they and they would call it a kind of neo-colonial enterprise. Um you know, I would say that's there are strains 
such strains within the community and that I can see why somebody might, especially a casual visitor who comes in for like a day or two might see that in the community because you, you visit there and you see a bunch of Europeans and Americans kind of driving around in, in South India and you might see it that way. As somebody who is myself half Indian and half American who has lived in Oracle for decades, I also know that the relationship is, is, is much more complicated. Um, so to begin with, half the community is Indian. Um, its relationship with the surrounding villages has been, you know, in some ways it, it's it's been detrimental, and in some ways it's been it's been very beneficial. And many people from the surrounding villages have joined the community and have created new lives and have found new forms of idealism or new forms of freedom. So, I mean, I think like one of the underlying principles of Oroville is this idea of human unity and different cultures living together. Uh, you know, the mother whom you referred to, who was the founder of Oroville, once said that she wanted to create a Tower of Babel in reverse. Um, that's a very ambitious goal. It's not just about the interaction between uh, the local Tamil population and some kind of homogenous white population. Um, you know, one of the things I try to bring out in my book is that there were huge differences, let's say, between certain continental European populations like the French, who were very idealistic and radical, and then, you know, what you might think was kind of more pragmatic Anglo-Saxon populations like the English and the Americans. So there have been many, many intercultural challenges um, within Oroville, and that's part of like that's part of the sort of DNA of the place is to have these different populations together, thrashing it out. I mean, I know, you know, my kids have done most of their education in the schools there. Um, they're pretty remarkable intercultural, multicultural schools, uh, which means they also come with all the challenges of, of those of those multicultural. Well, schools. in terms of, and and I know your wife also grew up there. It's an important piece of the book and the narrative. Did you grapple with bringing your kids back? Uh, do, were you ambivalent? Do you feel it's been a success? Uh, yes, we, we definitely grappled with it. And that might, you know, one of the, the, there are a couple of reasons. Like one is just because they're growing up in such an unusual place. Although I have to say that I've often felt very good about because I feel like as long as the, you give children the tools to make their own decisions about where they want to live later, um, it's greatly beneficial for them to, to grow up in a place which is very different from the rest of the world so that they know that there are differences and they know that there are other ways to live. And, and, and if they choose to, to live that way, they can. And if they choose to live another way, they, they, that's fine too. I think it's a problematic if you bring up your kids in a place like Orville and you don't give them the tools to make that choice later. Um, the other thing is, you know, that at the, at the core of the book is it's not just about Orville and Utopia. There's this sort of tragic personal history in, in my wife's family that I, you yeah. know, I don't know too much about. And so that was, yeah, that was challenging to bring up the kids in the sort of in the shadow of that uh, tragedy where people had died in mysterious circumstances and, and, and a lot of people. How old are your kids now? 13 and 16. Okay. And are, are they happy to have spent so much time there? I think so. I mean, you know, I, I think that, I mean, yes, I know that they, they loved Orville. It's, it's a magical place to be a kid because it's, because it's free and, and, and it's, it's safe and you have a kind of community feeling and you, and you kind of run around. I don't know that kids at a very young age, how much they grapple with the kind of ideals and the ideology. And in fact, you know, I know from my own childhood that in some ways, um, if you're, if you're spoon fed it and you're fed a surfeit of it, you tend to reject it actually. And then it's, and then it's later in life that you think about it a little more. Um, it's so funny that you use the word free, a uh, 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 cash. I don't know if you're familiar with, a new book by uh, Leah Upi, a uh, LSE political philosopher called Free. She was on the show a few weeks ago. Okay. And her book, in a peculiar way, parallels yours 
uh, her book is about growing up in uh, Hodges, uh, Albania, which was okay. certainly more dystopian than utopian. But yeah. what comes out of that book is the way in which everyone, for better or worse, becomes a child. So, so my question to you, I mean, you've clearly grown up. You, mm-hmm. you went from there to Harvard. You were a Rhodes Scholar. But you can never really leave these worlds, can you? Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that book. It looks really interesting. Yeah, I, I think was... you'd enjoy it. And I think you'd actually have a great conversation with her. Yeah, I will look it up. Um, I mean, I'll just start by saying that Orville is not totalitarian Albania. Like, you know, I mean, no, and not... I didn't I, I didn't suggest yeah. in any way. I, I didn't mean that in any way. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I just mean that that um, in the context of freedom, it's a free place. I mean, I say that because sometimes people ask me, you know, is Orville a cult? Um, and, and they say, you know, a cult is a place that's, that's easy, easy to get into and hard to get out of. And Orville's sort of the opposite. It's kind of hard to join the community and pretty easy to slip out of. Um, and there's no kind of like unifying authority kind of dominating life or whatever. Um, the question about, do you ever leave a place like that? It's a, it's, it's a good question. It's a really important one. And I write about this in the book and several people, uh, who grew up in Orville wrote to me saying that those lines really uh, meant a lot to them. I say something like, you know, that that children of utopias are like exiles, that you you grow up with this dream, you grow up with this kind of fantasy of a better world. Uh, as a child, you kind of believe in it. And then you grow up and you realize, well, you know, it's a lot harder to achieve than, 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 than it might seem. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very challenging. And so you sort of half give up on it and you move on into the real world and you move on into the adult world. But a part of your brain is always occupied by that fantasy and a part of your brain always clings to that dream. So it's kind of like an exile from paradise. And so I know many, many people who grew up in Oroville, like me, who are scattered around the world, who are living successful, quote unquote, normal lives, but their brains and their hearts kind of long for something um, that's unattainable, but that they believed in at some point. Do you include yourself with them? Oh, I absolutely include myself. I feel I feel like an exile and I feel like a, a misfit and, and, you know, in many parts of the world. And sometimes... You know, I, the way I look at it now, being a little older and wiser, I used to sort of lament it. I'm like, sometimes that feeling of outsiderdom is a liability and sometimes it's an asset. And it's just, it's very situational, basically. Yeah, and I think the difference between your book, Better to Have Gone, and Upi's book, Free, um, is that she writes autobiographically as a child growing mm-hmm. up. And the mm-hmm. book ends when she's 16 or 17. Your book is consciously written as an adult. Do you think you could have written the book as a child too? And would it have been a different book? Yeah, that's a great question. Not only did I write it as an adult, remember, but I returned, I, I wrote it after returning and building an adult life in the community. So my relationship to Oroville, I left at 17. I visited regularly because I have family and roots there. Um, but I, you know, then I moved back when I was... Um, I don't know, I was about 28, 29, and I built another life there as an adult. Um, And so it's an utterly different relationship to the place. And part of the experience of writing this book was to revisit things that I had lived as a kid and kind of felt instinctively as a kid, but to revisit them with the critically trait, critically attuned, you know, more cerebral, if you want to call it, brain of an adult um, and sort of process it and analyze it more. And had you been writing as a child about Oroville, what do you think you would have said? Um, I think it would have been a little bit more 
naively idealistic. I think I might have, as they say in the United States, you know, imbibed a little bit more of the Kool-Aid <laughs> when, when, I, when I was a kid, um, which is not, I mean, kids can be very cynical, of course, but so, you know, you're cynical about the shortcomings of, of the adults in your world, but you, you sort of, you believe in the possibility for this kind of dramatic transformation of human society a little bit more than, than at least I do as an adult. Um, we had a show uh, recently with a, a USC a historian, Nomi Stoltzenberg, about how some uh, Holocaust survivors came to New York and created quite literally a, a, a shtetl. It was run by a man called Joel Teitelbaum, who's a kind mm -hmm. of Lubavitch charismatic, probably a, a religious version of uh, Mira Alfasa. Do you think there are similarities between those, I guess they're conservative utopian communities of returning somewhere to Auroville or or ones which are futuristic? Do they have things? I mean, I, 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 I'm not suggesting you're probably that familiar with this particular Hasidic community, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're both in the business of escaping modernity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, escaping modernity or um, I think I once wrote an article about utopia where there was a sentence in it, something like taking a break from history, you know, was 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 and it was so it was an essay about various utopian communities, uh, 18th and 19th century American utopian communities. And um, and and the, and the line was that they all share this kind of urge to create a holiday from history in a way. Right. You, was this the New Yorker piece, The Return of yeah, the Utopians? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a great yeah. piece. I remember reading it. It was back in 2016. Yeah. Yeah, it was a kind of, you know, I was trying out ideas before the book. Um, but so I think I think that, yeah, like these, these communities, their specific manifestations across the world and across history are wildly different and are often products of the specific historical moment because they're often you know, directly in opposition to whatever's going on in history at that time. Um, but their underlying sort of impulses and motivations are pretty universal. And I think in some ways that also probably, you know, the, part of the appeal of the book to an average reader, I, I like I have a line in there somewhere where I, or maybe it was in the proposal for the book, I don't remember, where I say we're pretty much all utopians at heart, whether you're a banker who wakes up every day in New York City dreaming about another world or a better world, or whether you are a hippie in Orville digging in the soil, the underlying human impulse is, is, is quite similar. Um, and, and, you know, in the book itself, this dynamic plays out because one of the lead characters, you know, to cut it short, he, he comes from a very traditional sort of conservative American family and he moves to Orville. And a lot of the, the, the material in the book consists of the letters between him and his sort of very conservative, wealthy father, who, who, who it seems like he never understands what his son is doing. But then towards the end of his life, he writes in this beautiful letter where he says something like, I admire you so much on your pilgrimage and the search you've made, which I never dared to make, better to have gone on it than to have stayed here quietly. And that, you know, that's where the title of the book comes from. Yeah, it's funny that you write in that New Yorker piece about Onieda in central New York, which mm -hmm. I'm assuming isn't very far from uh, the, 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 um, the Hasidic community. It'd be interesting to go from one to the other. What about writing about utopias? Oh, I began this conversation with a reference to Moore's Utopia. You're not very kind. I don't think you're very sympathetic to um, to Moore. In your in your um, in your New Yorker piece, you write: 500 years ago, a man who condoned torture 
Religious Persecution and Burning at the Stake, wrote a book about the perfect world. Um, how easy do you think it is to write a book about utopia? And, and what skills does it require? Well, I mean, look, there are different kinds of books about utopia. And, you know, Moore is obviously the father, the patron saint of utopia, as I call him in the book. Well, what he invents the term. I mean, he, the, the word came yeah. from his book. Yeah. So. And, you know, what I was trying to point out there was the inherent contradictions and hypocrisy that almost always exist between the idealism and the nobility of utopia and the very, and, and the flawed, inherently flawed, you know, human nature. And, and that's just a sort of running theme across utopias. And so when you ask me how easy is it to write about utopias, I think, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how easy it is. I think that books that, that, that write about unflawed, perfect utopias are false, to put it bluntly. I think some of the most brilliant writing about utopia came out of, uh, you know, uh, sort of co the communist bloc and 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 the sort of so the Soviet uh, era, because these were people writing uh, in much more realistic, maybe even cynical ways. So rich people. books. We what? What are your favorite books? Writers on well, my my the book I always return to is uh, Czesław Miłosz. You know, who's a Polish poet. Uh, his book, The Captive Mind. Uh, it's a, it's a nonfiction book. He's better known for his poetry. He won the Nobel Prize mainly for the poetry, but The Captive Mind is this absolutely brilliant exploration of what I think of as the psychology of utopia, like why people buy into the, why people buy into the dream and the things they're willing to say and do in pursuit of the dream and the way they're able to hide from and reject and abnegate reality against their own better judgment and, and own better instincts. Because I mean, one of the dynamics you see is once you're kind of committed to the dream, uh, at a personal level, or you've committed many years of your life, or perhaps you're materially committed to the dream, uh, it's very hard to stare countervailing evidence in the face, right? I mean, this is this is essentially a, a religious impulse. Like, when things get hard, fundamentalism doubles down. It rarely backs off. You mentioned about taking a break from history. My reading, at least, of Moore's Utopia is, is a warning about taking a break from history. Um but what happens when history goes wrong, Akash? Perhaps today in the 2020s, when things seem to be breaking up, is thinking in utopian language valuable? How do we do it in a creative way without taking a break from history? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the really interesting things you see over the course of history is that uh, these utopian experiments and utopian movements often emerge from the darkest moments in history. For, for probably pretty obvious reasons, right? So, you know, a lot of American um, sort of back to earth and, and other utopian movements emerged right after the Civil War. There was this kind of efflorescence, um, you know, uh, in, in a way you could say the Renaissance itself emerged from the Dark Ages. And then like what we think of as the 60s stuff, the 60s communities actually began in the 50s and emerged from the detritus of World War II and continued with the hippies. But they often emerged from this sense that existing institutions and existing morality is just bankrupt and isn't providing solutions anymore, which is, I think, the way many of us feel now. And so I'm not surprised that, you know, there's a lot of what you might call radical thinking now, and there's a sort of feeling that we should be aiming at, at a dramatic overhaul of society. Um, and you see that in, in some of our political currents. And I, I totally understand that. And I think that it can be if harnessed the right way. It can, be, it can lead to, you know, great changes. I also know how badly those types of thoughts and those types of movements often go. And so I'm, so I'm cautious about them. 
are wary of them. Uh, you have a, a Substack newsletter, A Better World. Very briefly to end, um, Akash, one or two ideas that you may or may not have learned from your upbringing about realizing a better world today in February 2022? Well, I think the one I would return to is the need for caution about radical thoughts and sort of the search for dramatic reinvention of what seems to me not exactly immutable, but pretty, pretty, you know, hard human nature. Um, And that some of the most some of the most lasting changes are often incremental, even if motivated by utopian thought. Um, and the reason for that is not just pragmatism, that, that you know, this is how real change happens. It's also because radical movements often end in catastrophe. Um, and so a lot of like modern day adherents of utopia don't like to hear this. Um, and, the, and it sounds like you're just kind of like, you know, bringing out the dirty laundry or whatever. But when, you know, uh, as much as there are examples of noble utopias that have succeeded, or if there are any, I mean, you know, the the, the, the atrocities of the, of the Soviet Union were were a kind of were a kind of utopia. I mean, you could say that some of the millenarian fantasies of Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia were a kind of utopia. Um, and so I think again, like the lesson I take away from having spent many years in a would-be uh, utopian community is to is to just be careful of radical thinking and to be focused on human human beings and human nature and the diversity and the complexity of humanity. Well, it's a wonderful book. And I want to congratulate you a bit late, I'm afraid, Akash. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people have congratulated you before on this uh, wonderful book, Better to Have Gone, but Better Late Than Never. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to Better to Have Gone, Love, Death and the Quest for Utopia in Auroraville uh, in, uh, in February 2022? Well, look, I'll tell you my um, COVID reading, which was something I wanted to read for 10 years, and I'm not sure how connected it is to to Utopia, but it's very, very relevant to today's moment. I finally got around to reading Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman. Yes. Um, Another good book on on the fate of uh, (laughs) Utopias. Right. Well, and with what's going on in that part of the world now, you know, it's, it's a book about the basically... Um, you know, World War II in, that, in, in the Soviet Union and, and Ukraine and that part of the world. So, I, I mean, that's an absolute masterpiece. As far as um, books about utopia, I would uh, return to Miłosz's book on the captive mind, which, again, is set in Eastern Europe and it's about the Soviet empire and, 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 and the sort of the power of ideological thinking and group thinking. And so it's it's both about utopia, but I think also quite relevant to uh, the moment today and, and what we're dealing with today politically. Very wise. Akash Kapoor, the author of Better to Have Gone. Who's in charge, Akash? Who's in charge? Um, I have a line in the book that says something like, you know, fate is basically in charge, but we choose our pathways within its broad avenues. <laughs>